I would like to read the scripture this morning. Um, It's from the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Susan, for reading God's word for us. And let me just add my welcome to Susan's. So glad that each one of you is here with us this morning. And my name is Bill Gorman. I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus. And it's a delight to get to serve this congregation. And so I'm so glad that you're here. You've joined us. Um, kids, always, uh, we have this Kid Connect available for you as well. So if you haven't picked up one of these, um, you can ask your mom and dad. They're right back kind of at the end of the, the pews, uh, entrance to the pews here. And helps you kind of follow along with the sermon. Um, as we go through here. So as we get ready to look at this, this text, this passage from John that Susan's read for us, I'd love to start off by praying and, and just asking that God would reveal himself to us in his word as we read it, as we study it together here now. So um, let, let me do that here. Father in heaven, we're so thankful um, for the gospel of John. We're thankful for all of your word, but as we spend the next several weeks looking at John's eyewitness account of his life uh, with you, uh, with your son Jesus. Um, I pray that you would reveal yourself in fresh ways to us. Um, I pray that we would come with a posture uh, that would allow that to happen. So I pray that that would be the case now, that we would place ourselves under your word, ready to hear, eager to learn. Um, pray that for myself even now as I prepare to teach. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I, I knew the moment would come at some point, and uh, yeah, I, I tried to postpone it as long as possible, but uh, Monday evening it happened. Um, our next-door neighbor, our new next-door neighbor, asked me the question, so what do you do? And uh, in the split second between the time she asked the question and I answered it, I just hoped and prayed we had enough, had, had enough previous interaction um, that my reply wouldn't make me seem like a total weirdo. Uh, I said, actually, I'm a pastor. And she said, oh, okay. Uh, and, and as quickly as I could, I kind of wanted to describe where the church was and how long we'd been in the neighborhood, etc. But, but why is it that there's always a little bit of hesitation on my part whenever I get the, 
what do you do question. Well, it's without a doubt because I want to be respected. I want to be taken seriously. I mean, I like to think of myself as, as a thoughtful, engaged person. I mean, I listen to NPR every day. Um, I, I love learning about history and science and culture. And yet, and many of you know this from your own experiences, that, that in our neighborhoods, you know, saying that you attend, or perhaps even worse, that you lead an evangelical church is not the best way to get to people to think of you as thoughtful and, and educated and, and culturally savvy, right? In fact, some of you are probably here this morning, and you walked in here thinking, I, I just don't know what my friends or coworkers would think if I told them I came to church uh, this morning. I'm just kind of checking this out, but I, I don't really want my neighbors to know I did this. And why is this? Well, we heard the answer in the passage that Susan read for us. Nathaniel voices what so many of us feel about Christianity. Can anything good come from Nazareth? And can anything good come from Nazareth? Nobody wants to be from Nazareth. No one wants to follow someone from Nazareth. And yet, here's the thing that we can't miss this morning, and that's that Christianity will always be from Nazareth. Christianity will always be from Nazareth. Christianity will always engender doubt and skepticism and even ridicule. It sounds like this. As modern people, we can't really believe that Jesus rose from the dead physically, right? I mean, maybe spiritually or some, you know, in the hearts of the disciples, but he didn't really rise from the dead. Or, or as thoughtful people, we can't really take the Bible seriously as, as God's word. I mean, it's an inspiring book of, you know, kind of religious writings, but it's not actually God's word. Or surely we can't believe in a God who would judge people. That's what it sounds like for Christianity to be from Nazareth today. And, and I feel the weight of those doubts in my own heart and mind frequently. Can anything good really come from Nazareth? And yet, I believe, I trust, I know I, that, that, that the truth is so often stranger than fiction and despite everything, I believe that Christianity from Nazareth or not is not just helpful, but it's also true. That, that Jesus is so beautiful, so desirable, so essential that from Nazareth or not, he must be shared. And throughout these next eight weeks, as we look at the Gospel of John together, we're going to see how Jesus shares Jesus, how he invites people to know him. And we're going to see that Jesus listens he, he listens to the satisfied. He listens to those who are grieving, to those who are hurt, those who are outcast. Jesus listens. And this morning, as we study this passage, we're going to see that Jesus, perhaps surprisingly, listens to the skeptic. So take a look with me at John chapter 1. I'd love for you to follow along if you have a, a Bible open with me in the passage today. And in the Gospel of John, we, what we find is eyewitness testimony of, of a person, of a man named John, the son of Zebedee, about Jesus and those who encountered Jesus during his time on earth. And John wrote his firsthand account at the end of the first century, and he wrote with a specific purpose in mind. He wrote with the purpose of helping others believe that Jesus really was who he claimed to be. At the very end of the Gospel of John, in John 20, 
verse 30, John writes this. He says, I wrote so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. And one of the first encounters that we find in John's gospel is his encounter with a skeptic. But we need to back up a couple of verses to really understand what's going on here. So if you have a Bible open, look at verse 35. John the Baptist, not the writer of this book, it's kind of confusing. You have John the Baptist and then also John who wrote the Gospel of John, two different people. John the Baptist sees Jesus and he declares that he is the one, that Jesus is the one that Israel, God's people, have been waiting for him for so long. And two of John the Baptist's followers, Andrew and another person who's not named, but we think it's probably John who wrote the book, John of Zebedee, start following Jesus. And they don't just sort of start following him figuratively. They, they literally start following him down the road. And as they're walking down the road, Jesus turns and says to them, what do you want? I love that moment in the gospel. What do you want? What, what do you need? And they say, Jesus, where are you staying? They, they want to be with him. They want to spend time with him. And so Jesus says to them, come and see. Come and see. And these two think that they have found the one person who was going to make everything right. Could he be the one who the Old Testament prophets spoke about? The one who is going to make everything right? Who would rescue God's people? They think that he really might be the one. And so they can't help but starting to tell others. Andrew runs and finds his brother Simon and brings him to Jesus. And, and Jesus, when he meets him, changes Simon's name to Cephas, which is an Aramaic name. But then John also says, and if you speak Greek, that's Peter. So I can just imagine Peter trying to write his name tag out. You know, he's at the synagogue and it's like, okay, Simon, I was formerly known as Simon, and then now my name's Cephas. But if you're a Greek speaker, you can also call me Peter. I mean, that's a lot to put on your, on your hello, my name is tag. But um, he's got a complicated name, but si Andrew and, and now Simon Peter, um, Cephas, uh, are, are following Jesus. And it's Andrew's actions here that, that lead us to the first observation that we see in the text this morning. And that's that Jesus finds us to find others. Jesus finds us in order for us to find others you know, we share what we are most excited about, whether it's, whether it's a new app on your phone, whether it's the great new film you just saw, a great new book, restaurant. We can't help but, but share what we're excited about. We share the, the, the new indie band that like you and only four other people know about, and, and they're the coolest thing ever until like now six of you like them, and then they've gone totally mainstream, and they're way not cool anymore. But, but we share with people what we're excited about. But when it comes to Jesus, we tend to stop. We tend to hesitate, right? Don't we? Why? Well, I think one of my friends actually here at the Brookside campus put this best. He said, when I tell people about Jesus or my faith in Christ, I, I get the same response as though I told them I ride a unicorn to work every day. And, and I think that's why we hesitate sometimes. We think people just, they're just not going to get it or, or understand or they're going to think we're totally strange. Uh, the satirical newspaper, The Onion, I think captures another one of the reasons why we often shy away from talking with people about Jesus. The headline reads, Street Evangelist Saves 300 Souls from Enjoying Park. Um, and, and we've all seen that guy, haven't we? And nobody wants to be that guy or even be associated with that guy, right? But, but does inviting a neighbor or a coworker who you've become friends with to church really put you in that category? I mean, probably not. 
But, but the key phrase there is who you've become friends with. I mean, we all tend to be skeptical of invitations from people we don't really know that well. I mean, people could invite me to do something I'd love to do, but if I don't know them that well, I'm going to be a little skeptical. But once you have a friendship with people, it's much easier to talk and make an invite to, why don't you come to church with me sometime? Now, if you're not a Christian, it might seem a little strange this morning to hear us as Christians kind of talking about how we can share our faith with others. But, but just think about it from our perspective for a moment. If we as Christians really truly believe that, that we have been found by the God of the universe, the one who rescues us from our brokenness, who forgives my regret and heals my shame, if I truly believe that the greatest source of joy and satisfaction is only found in him, and that you will never be fully satisfied without Christ, and not to mention eternal life versus an eternal terrible alternative, then then think about it. I I hope you see this. If I truly believe that, I would be be a jerk. Not not to share with you, to keep that to myself. But I think the question that can be then circulated in our mind is, well, doesn't that just sort of turn people into targets (laughs) that we've got to sort of seek out and, and, and share with as soon as we see them? Well, let's turn to the story and see what happens next. Look at verse 43. It says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Jesus finds Philip, and Philip is now crazy excited about Jesus. And he, like Peter and Andrew, thinks this is it. This is the one that we've been waiting for. This is the one. And he, and he can't wait to tell his buddy Nathaniel. And so he runs, and he finds Nathaniel. But, but it doesn't go as smoothly as Philip had planned, right? I mean, he had seen this earlier. With, uh, the, with, this happened with Andrew. He went and found Peter, and, and everything went great. But it doesn't go as smoothly with Nathaniel. So look at Nathaniel's response. Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come from Nazareth? And I'm sure we can all relate to Philip in this moment. I mean, this may be some of your worst fears. You finally get up the courage to, to share with someone or to invite them to come with you to church sometime, and you get shot down. Christianity has always been and will always be from Nazareth. Because Nazareth was, it was a small frontier town. It wasn't the, exactly the center of, of culture and influence in, in Galilee, or certainly in the region. And people already looked down on the people from the region of Galilee. So it was bad enough that you lived in Galilee. But even in Galilee, people looked down on Nazareth. In other words, Nazareth was kind of like Grandview. I mean, it's sort of like how people from New York, they might look down on Kansas City or the Midwest and be like, you know, it's kind of the Midwest, it's Kansas City, but, but even people in Kansas City kind of look down on Grandview. If you're from Grandview here this morning, I'm sorry, but you know it's true. I mean, you know it's true, right? So this was, it was like, this is Nazareth. This is, this is, this is Grandview. And so imagine how Philip felt in this moment. It would be like if I've told you you've got to see Star Wars, and then you see it, and somehow, in some inconceivable way, not only do you not like it, but you actually hate it. 
That's how Nathaniel responds, but, but not with a movie, with something that Philip was planning to build his, right, his life around. Are you kidding me, Philip? Nazareth? Really? I mean, come on, you, you can't be serious. Nothing good can come from Nazareth. So how does Philip respond in this moment? Does he get ticked? How dare you insult Jesus? Does he launch into a lecture trying to prove who Jesus is? No. And I love Philip's response here. He simply says the very thing that Jesus himself said to others. He said, Nathaniel, come and see. Come and see. Which leads us to the second observation this morning that we see in this passage. And that's that Jesus must be seen, not sold. Jesus must be seen, not sold. Jesus isn't Amway or Avon or Tupperware. He isn't a used car or a timeshare. He's a person to be known, not a product to be bought or sold. And now at this point, let me pause and say there's nothing wrong with sales as a profession, as a vocation. At its best, God uses the vocation of sales to connect people with needs and problems, with solutions to those needs and problems. Sales is a good thing. But when it comes to Jesus, we're inviting someone to see, to meet someone we know. It's the difference between ulterior motives and ultimate motives. Between ulterior motives and ultimate motives. And that's a helpful distinction. It's from a book called The Art of Neighboring. Because ulterior motives are deceptive. For example, it sounds like, well, I'm going to be nice to this person so that later on I'll have an opportunity to talk with them about Jesus. And ulterior motives, they're awful, and people can smell those things from a mile away. But ultimate motives aren't hidden. Our ultimate motive is to love our neighbors so much, so sacrificially, just for who they are, made in the image of God, because we long to show them how God, the one who made them, loves them, for the opportunity to show them the one who can satisfy. And we're not surprised by their skepticism. I mean, after all, we believe that someone rose from the dead. We shouldn't be surprised if people are a little skeptical about that claim. But, but, and nor are we offended. Christianity will always be from Nazareth. We're not trying to sell anything, but we're trying to love everyone. And so, with a smile, with joy, we say, come and see. Come and see. And look at what Jesus does when we give him a chance. Let's keep following the story. Look at verses 47, 48. So Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. See, Jesus immediately, as soon as he sees Nathanael, he compliments him, he affirms him. He's saying, look, here's a person who really tells the truth sincerely. This is one who is open and honest about what they think. But what does it mean that Jesus had seen Philip under the fig tree? I mean, was it, had Philip sort of like taken a selfie under the fig tree and Jesus was like looking at his Instagram feed and was like, oh, there's Philip under the fig tree. 
I mean, honestly, we don't know exactly what it means that, that Jesus saw him under the fig tree. There's lots of different interpretations that scholars have tried to understand. But, but what is clear is that Jesus, before he even meets Nathaniel, and, and you notice Nathaniel's shock in the next verse here, we'll get to it in a second, that, that he knows and understands them before he's ever met him. And in his remark, Jesus is saying to Nathaniel, I saw you. I heard your doubts, your questions, your fears before we even met. Jesus knows him. He notices, even though Jesus knows Nathaniel's doubts, and he knows the fact that Nathaniel disparages Nazareth where Jesus lives, but he doesn't attack him. He, he affirms him. See, Jesus affirms rather than attacks honest skepticism. That's the third thing we see in this story, that that Jesus affirms rather than attacks honest skepticism. Jesus doesn't approach Nathanael from a place of power, but from a place of humility. I mean, look, Jesus knows he's from Nazareth. (laughs) He's not under any delusions about about what that means. He knows he's from Nazareth. So he isn't shocked when Nathanael isn't immediately on board. And again, as Christians, we shouldn't be surprised when, when people are at best a little skeptical about Jesus. And Jesus affirms the honest skeptic, but the key word there is is honest. There's a big difference between honestly searching for the truth and hiding from the truth as a skeptic. I mean, there are skeptics who doubt because they don't have enough evidence or they still have honest questions that they, they genuinely are wrestling with and are left unanswered. But then there are skeptics who, who don't want to find evidence, who have decided from the outset that, that Christianity, it can't be true. And those are two very different places to be. If you were honestly pursuing the truth, trying to understand Jesus, then you will find what you are seeking. But the other, if you don't believe, it's not that you just don't believe, it's that you don't even want to. You like your life the way it is. You're, you're satisfied with where you're at. You don't want to be accountable. Your, your, your prejudice against Jesus is just too deep. Christians are often called bigots, and, and many of us at times are. And, and I'm sorry that at times Christians give Christ a bad reputation. A bigot is someone who obstinately or intolerantly devotes himself to his or her own opinions and prejudices. But, but if you're a skeptic here this morning, if you reject Jesus simply because he's from Nazareth, and, and you know what I mean by that, right? That, that you reject him simply because he's outdated or, or he doesn't fit your cultural values or, or whatever your prejudice against him might be, without actually checking in to him, really finding out who he is, isn't that the same thing? See, every one of us, whether we're a Christian or, or not, ought to regularly ask the question, why do I believe what I believe? Is it simply because this is what my family grew up believing? Or, or it's simply what, what's popular in culture right now? Or, or what's what I'm comfortable with? We, we need to question our questions. We need to doubt our doubts. So to how does Nathaniel respond to Jesus? We'll look back to the story. 
So if you look at verses 49 and 51, Nathaniel is all in. I mean, he's blown away and he declares, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You you are the King of Israel. And this is quite a reversal from just a few minutes earlier when he's saying, what good can come from Nazareth, right? And Jesus' response is, slow down, Nathaniel. I mean, you believe simply because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. That's nothing. Wait, once you really get to know me, you're going to see much greater things than this. His remark about the descending and ascending on angels, that Jesus saying, I am the way to God. I am the place where heaven and earth intersect. Nathaniel, when you really get to know me, you're going to find the place where heaven and earth become one, where true life is found. You see, Jesus critiques both mindless skepticism and mindless belief. I mean, Jesus isn't interested in just having people mindlessly follow him because they saw him do a miracle. He wants the whole of us. He wants all of us. He wants our brains and all. I love how C.S. Lewis uh, puts this in Mere Christianity. He writes that God is no fonder of intellectual slackers than of any other sort of slackers. If you are thinking of become a Christian, becoming a Christian, Lewis says, I warn you, you are, about, you are embarking on something which is going to take the whole of you, brains and all. But fortunately, it works the other way around. Anyone who is honestly trying to be a Christian will soon find his intelligence being sharpened. One of the reasons why it needs no special education to be a Christian is that Christianity is an education itself. If what Nathaniel claims about Jesus is true, that he is the Son of God, the King of Israel, the one God has sent. God himself come into the world he has made to rescue it and to set it right. Then he is someone we must at least pay attention to because of the magnitude of his claim and the measure of his life. Which brings us to our final observation. That, that Jesus can be rejected, but he can't be ignored. Jesus can be rejected, but he, but he can't be ignored. The magnitude of his claim, the measure of his life, the amount of witnesses means that Jesus can't just be ignored. We can certainly choose to reject him, but we can't just ignore him. I mean, imagine if you received a document that, that looked genuinely like it was from the IRS that says you owe thousands of dollars in back taxes. And, and you think this has to be a scam or something. But because of the magnitude of the claim, you have to investigate, right? You can't just dismiss something that genuinely looks like it's from the IRS saying you owe thousands upon thousands of dollars in back taxes. Even if, even if you really doubt it's true, the magnitude of the claim demands investigation. And you see, if Jesus just claimed to be a good wisdom teacher, uh, a, another good moral teacher, then we could probably be safe just to ignore him. There are lots of great religious teachers who have lived throughout the ages and share lots of good wisdom, and there's no way we can know everything that every one of them said. But Jesus claimed to be more than that, way more than that. He claimed to be God, and and he claimed that, that he was the only way to God, the final and fullest revelation of God. And he claimed that following him was the only way to life, and that rejecting him meant nothing short of death. He claimed that he would die and then rise again in three days. This is the magnitude of that claim. Demands investigation. Because when you read the Gospels, Jesus doesn't just come across as, as crazy. He's brilliant, attractive, sane, sacrificial. And he warrants investigation. 
And, and the good thing is that it's a claim we can investigate because we have the written records of eyewitnesses who claim to have seen Jesus do exactly what he said he would, rise from the dead. That's why I'm a Christian. Not, not because all of my doubts have been resolved or all of my questions have been answered. I assure you they haven't. But because when I look at the data with both the lenses of faith and history, I believe that Jesus has risen from the dead and that I've come to know him personally through his word and through his church and his people. So what does that mean for us? Well, here are two next steps. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I would encourage you to spend some time this week examining your doubts Maybe just make a list of what are the things that would have to change? What, would I ha- what questions would I have to get answered if I were to embrace Christianity? If you're honestly searching for the truth, you're, you will find it. Ask yourself, am I really honestly searching or am I hiding from it? Are you even open to the possibility that, that a man, that some guy from Nazareth 2,000 years ago could be exactly who you've been waiting for? Pray and ask Jesus to show you. And if you're a Christian this morning, we've, we've got a next step for you too. Um, there's a card that you were handed on your way, and I think most of you got this. I, I grabbed one. It looks like, it looks like this. Um, and this is just a simple card. I mean, you can do this on a blank sheet of paper even if you don't have one, but there's more of these on the, on the uh, name tag table when you came in. This is just a little kind of uh, tic-tac-toe kind of board thing. What's designed to do is help you to get your know your neighbors so, so my card looks like this. I've got a few blanks here where I don't know all of my neighbors, but this is me, our house, and then our back neighbor and a neighbor across the street and on either side. It just, it's designed to help you know your neighbors and begin to pray for them. And, and maybe you don't do this with your, with your neighbors. Maybe you say, I want to do this with people in, in my work. Maybe there's coworkers, friends from college, a, a close relative, a neighbor um, down the street who's not immediately adjacent. And, and kids, students, maybe it's a classmate, a coach. So take this card and just fill in some of those blanks. People that you would like to begin intentionally praying and loving and serving. Not with ulterior motives, but with ultimate motives. And if you're in a community group, you're going to even have a chance to talk with these in your group about you know, how we can do this and how we can better be praying for and serving our neighbors together. So again, take this card. Let this be a, a prompt to you to remind you to love your neighbors to love your coworkers, to pray for them, befriend them, to let them into the most important part of your life. Invite them to come and see. And if there are blanks in your boxes, like I have a few blanks here, pray that God would fill them, that you would meet those neighbors that you don't know or that there would be more people in your life who, who you could be sharing with, who you could be inviting. Christianity will always be from Nazareth. But Christ will always be from eternity. He is the one who has come from far off, who has come from a place of, of being high and lifted up to the place of a servant. He is the one who has come from all eternity into time to show himself to us, to rescue us. Christianity will always be from Nazareth, but it's the only way to the new heavens and the new earth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, first of all, I just want to repent of my own uh, misplaced skepticism, my own misplaced doubt that, that I, places where I have not trusted you like I should.
places where, I, where I've hung on to doubts, not, not because I genuinely have unanswered questions, but simply because if maybe if I really believe that was true, it would mean changing something in my life that I don't want to change. We repent of, of our lack of...